Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo, where we are busy stacking firewood, pulling out sweaters to greet our cooler air, and covering plants from frost warnings, all part of the rhythm of fall in western New York. I'm Peter Sabota. In this podcast, you'll hear some background noise. We hope you enjoy our NPR-style production techniques, giving you a brief glimpse into the sounds of Bangladesh. In this episode, our guest, M.D. Tuhino Islam, takes us to his work in a residential care setting in Bangladesh. He discusses the various types of institutions for children there and provides contrast with the U.S. system of care. Dr. Tuhin describes how and why children find their way into residential care settings in Bangladesh, as well as the outcomes he's learned about from the leavers, think graduates here, of these care settings. He goes on to describe what his work with these children taught him about making improvements in residential child care in Bangladesh and implications for practice, policy, and program development throughout the world. MD Tuhino Islam is a Bangladeshi social work practitioner, child rights activist, and part-time academic. He has 17 years of professional experience in the field of child welfare management, development, and research in the developmental sector in Bangladesh and abroad. Currently, he is a child welfare consultant with ActionAid Bangladesh, along with his regular job as Director, Education and Child Development Programs of a national NGO in Bangladesh. Dr. Tuhin was interviewed by telephone by our own Dr. Philomena Cretelli, Associate Professor here at the UB School of Social Work. We're speaking from Buffalo to Bangladesh about research on residential care in Bangladesh. And Tuhin, you did an important piece of research regarding residential care in Bangladesh. Could you just tell us some about this work? Well, thank you very much. Uh, Yes, this research is a part of my PhD at Edinburgh University. And uh, I did a bit of comparative study in three types of residential child care homes in Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, broadly, residential children's home is run by the government. Around uh, 10,000 children are there, and also government gives some sort of support for capitation grant around 40,000 children. Around uh, 1,500 is supported by the NGOs, and they are the most neglected kind of children, disadvantaged group. And rest, uh, it may be somebody, by some estimate, it says it's maybe nearly 6 million children in the institution, but we don't have any data. That's all our guesstimates and estimates. Uh, So rest of the children are in the faith-based organizations. It's called Madrasa or... So I did the Madrasa, is the Muslim faith-based organization. So I tried to do it in a way how an institution being as a parents look after the children, preparing the children to joining in the mainstreaming society in terms of education, healthcare support, relationship network, and once the children left, what are the support they get from the society or from the government or the NGO 
and how they cope with. So this is a more or less this that the background of the project. Okay, I think it'd be interesting for American audiences to understand a little bit more about what brings children into care in Bangladesh, wondering like, what are the circumstances and how do they get there? This is uh, very different from the West. Usually from my literature review and my observation in, in, in Britain and other, some other countries, I saw the children go there basically for dysfunctional families, single mom, if mother or parents are, get involved in drugs, and also obviously in poverty in, in the West. At the same time in Bangladesh, yes, poverty is one of the issues. Children go to the institutions. But there is other factor here, like especially the faith-based organization, the institutions. Children go there because parents send the children in the institution for their education, for their security. And in addition to that, parents think this, oh, religious education is important. So that's why they send the children to the institution. And this is somehow, in a way, for the inclusion of the education in Bangladesh. As well as the NGOs, they actually target the most disadvantaged children, those who are either sex worker children or traffic children or very children or orphan. But the government, they target only the orphan children for the children's home. The orphan, in your context, it says is both parents are absent, but in Bangladeshi context, it's the orphan is those, they don't have father. In, uh, in Islamic law. The, the, these are the other reasons. So basically, poverty is one of the reasons. Uh, yes, maybe some dysfunctional family I found, but uh, they go for the poverty is one of the reasons. Education is one of the important things. So, so security is one of the issues. So the children go to the institution for, for this reason. Is this mostly, I guess I'm hearing you say that they get into different places in a different way because in terms of the madrasa, the parents are generally sending them there. It's like, I know it's like a boarding school. So their parents would select that over a public school because they can't afford to send their child to another school or they prefer a religious-based school. What would be the reason they would select madrasa? Is it an issue of poverty, maybe needing you know to have the kids in the boarding school? or We have the boarding school as well, but for especially the faith-based organization, what you mentioned, uh, that's uh, that's more or less same. In addition to that, it's uh, in especially the rural part of the countries, they may not have uh, the government primary school or private school. So the faith-based organization actually filling that gap. So the children are go there. But one of the interesting findings I found in my research, I think this is also very interesting and uh, a bit strange. The expatriate parents, though especially the fathers who work in different parts of the world, especially the Middle East, they send their children to the institution because they have monies and other things. So the, as father is not at home, so guiding the children is a bit hard for mom or for the extended family. So they thought that, oh, it is good to send the children in the madrasa so they will get good education and health care according to them. Uh, some of the institutions are actually providing good uh, standard according to their perspective. They're saying a standard, not this is very much what you mentioned, like a boarding school type. They're providing good support, but not those who are free. 
Yes. I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about that. The madrasa, of course, was like a hot button word in the West when related to Pakistan. And people don't realize that madrasa just simply means school, a religious-based school. It is not anything more than that. So I wanted you to kind of explain a little more about how the kids get to the madrasa. But in terms of just the other types of, do you have child protection laws like as framework for, you know, you were talking about kind of the different ways that the kids get into different types of care. So is it ever a situation, is it always voluntary on the part of the parent or the kids are kind of abandoned? Or is there a court system where kids, you know, if there's a problem, they go and there's child protection laws? How does that work in Bangladesh? In Bangladesh, as a signatory of UNCFC, they are uh, following that uh, UNCFC in, uh, and accordingly, uh, under this framework, children are protected somehow. And also in Bangladesh, we have children's law. So that is also the protection. The NGOs, the government, and madrasa, everybody have their own way. Though the government the law, everybody is bound to follow that. But not necessarily that is, is following. First of all, I'm coming one by one. The government is directly trying to implement UNCFC as a signatory as well as government, government has the children's law. And what you said, the abandoned children, yes, government supports some abandoned children. They have called baby home, now around 225 uh, capacities. So this one group of and abandoned children, those who are baby, uh, not necessarily even one or two or this. So normally the abandoned baby, they spend few years, five, six years, and then they move in the you know, government children's home. This is one group of children. Yes, we have the called correction, juvenile justice or correction center. They then either police or the social welfare department or social worker they pick the children and send them in the correctional center, or sometimes guardians send them uh, to the correctional center. So this is quite different group. But I didn't do any research on this bit. But my group, there is a framework is uh, they have to be in government, they have to be orphan. So this is the first criteria. But not necessarily everybody is orphan because they are hiding their identity, parental identity, to get the admission there. And then they apply to the local social welfare department, uh, and they finally they uh, recruit them from there uh, once in a year. This is the government framework. But the NGOs framework, this is a bit different because normally in the government, parents are interested to send their children there. But on the other hand, in case of NGO, the NGO social worker, they are more interested to serve the children. So they pick the children or they convince the mother and uh, bring the children in the children's home. And because they're most disadvantaged, more vulnerable, more risky group, like sex worker children, street children, and these and that. So the, the protection is the priority. And they also work under the framework of UNCFC. And also definitely they follow the government's laws. And also we have national plan of action for. but. For the case of madrasa, means orphanage, faith-based orphanage, and they have two groups. One is called Aliyah Madrasa, you may know, is the secular education as well as religious education. So government support, in a way, 
to that group of madrasa uh, and give some sort of capitation grant, means uh, a little bit of money from the government. But another group is called Qawmi, you may know it, those Qawmi madrasas, uh, those who don't have any affiliation with government. They are supported by the community peoples and so they don't follow any government rules or regulation or anything like that. So for them, parents actually send the children to there and they accept everybody. And this is the framework. And they do it especially for the betterment of the children, for religious values, to support the children. Their understanding is quite different than the government and the NGOs. They are the foundation and fundamental principle is to save the children and also through religious understanding, religious belief. But the other two groups are basically UNCRC and yeah. So, okay, I think you explained that there's basically three different kinds of care and how they operate. So what's similar in all of these residences? What's common to all these places that the kids go to in terms of their goals, their programming? What's common to them? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It took a bit long time for me because when I did my proposal before starting PhD, then at the time I said, well, I'll do comparative study very easily. But when I started my field work and I said, oh, I'm comparing apple and banana because completely different, <laughs> completely different. But yeah, it, it took a long time. But finally, I found there is some common thing. First of all, all of their aim and objective is to look after children and preparing the children, but their ways is different. Then also all of them are residential. So this is also very common. All of them are providing education. All of them are providing healthcare support. All of the organization, they're giving some sort of moral educations. Uh, so everybody's aim and objective is the same. Being a parent, they're supporting the children to prepare for the real world. This is their communalities. Uh, but within the communality, there is a lot of difference as well. Like uh, the government, they send all of their children to the local primary or high schools for their education. But on the other hand, NGOs, most of them have their own primary school within their compound to integrate the children and the society because most of the NGOs children are stigmatized because they're sex worker children or, or street children and uh, stigma. So what they do normally, they have their own primary school. So they bring the local children up to grade five here and then up to grade five, they send their children in the local community school. So they integrate in that way in the education. And the madrasa, or the, uh, they have their own school up to the master's degree, so they don't send children, so they have their own education system within the uh, orphan. So the education system is quite different. And also the healthcare support, NGO could uh, spend a lot of money because somehow they got money from the donors for the children's health. Government, they have very limited budget, so they don't have that much of support. And the community faith-based organization, interestingly, the children normally don't, they don't get sick, even though they don't have uh, good uh, accommodation or other, uh, or even food. But uh, if they get sick, they get support from the institution. And also a lot of physicians, they support the children, uh, first of being poor, as well as 
uh, for the religious education. Uh, so this is their education, very different. But on the other hand, at this, I wanted to mention this, uh, the NGO is support is a bit posh kind of support uh, for the children. Like uh, they get uh, good food, uh, good uh, education, uh, good healthcare good uh, inter because if I compare with these three type of institution, not I'm I'm not uh, generalizing everybody. But on the other hand, the faith-based organizations, uh, the orphanages, the the childrens, they have their one big room and they sleep uh, around 30, 40 uh, children in the same room. They do use that room as a multi-purpose room, the study room and other things. Everything is the same place. But the government is also, they have very big establishment, but unfortunately that is not uh, very good in a sense because they don't have good furnitures or it's very old, there is no maintenance, the staff is short, all these things is happening. This is the hard work bit. But the most interesting part is the soft skill that is different. Uh, the government is much more rigid, much more uh, strict in a way with the behavior with the children and other things. And NGO is more or less in the same kind. They don't have very good relationship with, uh, like especially the government, uh, they don't have very good relationship with children and there is a big power dynamics there. No, but an NGO, yeah, there is power dynamics, but still there is some very good relationship with the children. And But in Madrasa, the interesting thing is uh, they have very good relationship with the staff, as well as they are much more flexible than other two types of institution. The children, because their parents live usually in neighborhood, in a neighbor area, so they can go and visit their parents or their relatives almost every day and whenever they wanted to do it. So... The relationship with the staff is much more stronger than the madrasa, than other two groups of children. And that's why one of the big reasons their outcome is much better than the other two types of institutions. You mentioned some of this in, in some of your findings that I read in terms of when you first started in the, I don't know if it was the government-run ones, that they weren't even allowed to see their families and that you had come back and sort of brought attachment theory with you and kind of promote that. So is that still the case that it's very strict that in the madrasa they are connected, but in the other places they're not connected to their family? Is that still the case of a not so much connection? Yeah, very strict. Like uh, uh, currently I am developing the policy for one international organization's supported NGO, those who support uh, residential childcare. Uh, uh, so the NGOs is also, they were, yeah, uh, because uh, you know the PhDs, I did a small scale study. So yeah, I before starting my PhD, I thought, oh, there was very strict. Because at the time, I thought that, oh, they didn't want to allow, including myself, mother, to visit the children in the children's home. Because we thought that, oh, mother of sex worker, there will be extra hassle from the community, bad impression, and moms might be whispered, this and that. And at the time, I was being head of the programs. I also support that, and I didn't do it. But when I did my master's, and I think uh, what you mentioned, and I didn't have any understanding about attachment resilience, and I go, oh, God, what mistake I did. Because 
she is sex workers or other thing to me, but she is mom to the children. So then I change some of the rules and this is helping because emotional attachment and attachment is very important. Yes, but the government is still very strict. They do normally, they do not allow any visitors. Uh, the NGOs sometimes they do not allow visitors. But the madrasa, fortunately, they're much more open. Anybody can go anytime and see what is happening there. So would a madrasa also serve a parent who was a sex worker? Because you were saying it was mostly two-parent families that are going to, sending their children to madrasa or? Yeah, the madrasa, they support everybody. But normally, what happened, due to stigma, the sex worker's mom, normally they do not disclose their identity in the madrasa. Because I can give you an example. When we started first children home for the sex worker children, and I was the pioneer to start that program. At that time, none of the local school actually accept the sex worker children for this. And we tried, 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 but thanks God, uh, one madrasa, they accepted the children. And, and unfortunately, after we, the principal of that madrasa, like, okay, you need to take your children back because otherwise you know, the, the parents they are not actually accepting and they are not sending their children to our children uh, in the institution. So they are much more open, though unfortunately the media or somehow uh, in the West exported madrasa is something different. It's a bit of some sort of terrorist or something, something like that. fundamentalism and this and that. Yeah, but for me as well, being a social worker or childhood activist, and I, as I have been working in the research and NGO most of my life, before starting my PhD, I thought, oh, NGO model is the best model, and I will write that. But data actually guided me in different way. So it is completely a different experience. So that kind of takes us to like, what are the daily routine in these homes and what kinds of skills, what kinds of goals do they have in these programs in residential care? The main program of the, all the institution is providing them education, healthcare support, social skills, and ultimate aim is to rehabilitate them in the society. So, and for that, everybody have their own routine and own curriculum and own programs. Like, for an example, the government, everybody's education is compulsory up to grade eight. But after grade eight, those who do not want to go for formal education, they have the option to go for vocational education or something like that. And government keep them up to their 18th birthday. So this is their education. And education normal, they go to school, they have their homework. Uh, if possible, they give some sort of support for private, private tuition, this kind of thing. Now, on the other hand, the NGO, they give a bit more support. They have their good space for education, uh, give the private tutor and other things. But the madrasa, they don't have any other tutor or this and that because their education is the main priority. At the same time, the NGO, they wanted to give all kind of skill to the children, like dance, martial art, song, and what not. Because the NGO, they thought, uh, that uh, uh, they are disadvantaged. So they need to be more equipped or qualified or prepared for the world than the other children because they are somehow neglected and stigmatized. 
but the NGOs, uh, they are giving more and more. On the other hand, the madrasa, their main focus is only education. And other thing is normal thing they are providing. And the routine is very different as well. Like madrasa, they start 4 o'clock in the morning and go to bed around 8 o'clock in the evening. And within that, they are study, and their other physical exercise, uh, education, food, and other things are there. So this, all these things are there. So in terms of you found differing outcomes among the various groups, and at least in the United States system, a lot of what we measure, I mean, a huge issue for children coming out of residential care is can they find a job? Can they function? Can they have a family and take care of their family? Those kinds of things. Are they stable people? I was just wondering in terms of like the outcomes you looked at and what are some of the outcomes of these programs that you looked at? Again, in comparing with this three type of institution, my findings is outcome in terms of education, in terms of job, in terms of healthcare support, in terms of mental and physical stability, in terms of happiness. This, the madrasa children are much more better positioned than the government and NGOs. This is also the most interesting because I didn't expect that. But the reality is that because somehow the madrasa children, they don't have any eviction system or the expel force leave. Like, because outcome is better there or more because in the, in the government and NGO, after a certain period of time, especially when the children come in the adolescent period, so they do a lot of things, they break rules and regulations. So for that, government and NGO, they evict the children. So after spending nine years or 10 years, and if you throw the children, so you really don't see the outcome. But on the other hand, madrasa, they don't have any eviction system. They, if any children do anything, they try to repair it in a different way. Sometimes they use different kind of therapy, even in a physical punishment. So ultimately, they get some sort of good support in on. And in education, again, yes, madrasa education system is very narrow. They do not want to be a doctor or engineer. But in Bangladesh, there's a lot of mosques. In every school, you need a religious educated teacher. So they got some sort of job there. And the healthcare, and during my interview, I didn't find any of them actually the sick or health is bad. And also, this is one of the important things for that good outcome. Because society as a whole look after that uh, faith-based organization children. Because the society think that, oh, they are part of the society. But on the other hand, for sex worker children, still there is the stigma. Yet this is still there is leveling. So somehow there. And also the sex worker children themselves is uh, stigmatized and suffer in identity crisis. Because they don't know who is their father. Because especially the, in, in the growing, growing up phase, they have some sort of, I wouldn't say mental health, but some sort of vacuum there. And they know yeah, from their own experience or the surroundings, even though they get good education, they may not get husband because of their birth identity. Their mom or their aunt could have gone to the society, but they couldn't stay there because of the social pressure. So in all, all the factors are also important for that better. And... The final thing is that spiritual education is actually helped the madrasa children 
to think very straightforward way and or they find that oh we came here for education not really for food or that we came here for get spiritual food and i asked them why you do not want to be a doctor or engineer or something like that yes we are doctor and engineer but we are doctor or engineer for the society not for a physician but we are a spiritual doctor and they have the gratefulness to god and they go, okay whatever we do that's as good and uh, we are doing this so that's all thing and also they have believed that what has god written in our faith that will happen so that also motivated that the spiritual mindset help them to be happier than the other two groups so this is one of the big reason i found is the better outcome if i compare with these three types of institution not necessarily only for material but also spiritual and other soft skill so what happens to the children that are discharged or evicted from the programs they end up going back home or is there an issue with children on the street what happens so that was my part of the, my process because that actually influenced me to do the, my research so we didn't know and actually still we don't know that much what happened for sex worker children i know some of the especially if it is girls they go and start sex business for boys they get involved with uh, crime even human trafficking or drug addict or something like that so they go to the street for the government as well somehow i don't know the exact uh, thing whether they get involved in crime as such but they don't get any good job they either do some manual kind of job or uh, just try to survive so basically i think you're saying that there's more flexibility in the faith based organization and the children stay there longer they stay till they're 21 and they mostly from what i'm hearing they follow more a spiritual path in terms of their career they would be involved in would that be for the girls too or they would be involved in working in a religious school or are they separate gender wise in the madrasa they have the separate both for boys and girls but if a number is more in the, the for boys the, the ngos they have the combined boys and girls but after certain age the boys and girls get separated the government is also the separate for boys and girls is separate and it is also important for the culture the culture actually doesn't allow as such and also a lot of thing so in terms of just the outcomes what do you think are some of the important things we should focus on in the outcomes of your research what do you think are some of the key things that should be focused upon I actually have another question that I was thinking related to this and because I think you mentioned the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and one of the things I want our audience to recognize is that the US has not signed that Bangladesh signed it we are also part of education for all like trying to expand just access to education that's part of the rights of children and the millennium development goals and those things and you mentioned that some of the madrasas are supported by the government and others are not is the government seeing the madrasa as an important part of the array of things that can help reach educational goals because i think in some countries they're not doing that like in pakistan the government isn't really that involved and they've been a little reluctant i am answering the first part of your question first uh, government is try to integrate the madrasa especially the qaumi madrasa and try to get involved with their all of their activities because they are not uh, accountable as such because government is not supporting them 
So as they are not supporting them, so they thought that, oh, who are you to ask me what I am doing? But government is trying to get involved with them. And yeah, it's changing, it's taking time, but yeah, it needs to be worked more and more to get in. Because what I believe, this change within, because if you want to change anything, so you cannot just say, oh, do it, do it, and do it. They will do it. So you have to go there and understand what is happening there. And through that evidence, then you need to plan accordingly and you can change. Yes, this is the government is trying to include. and But unfortunately, we don't have any residential childcare policy in Bangladesh. So none of them have any policy to work. Uh, there might have some minimum standard of care and UNICEF or other things, but it doesn't work everywhere. In, uh, because it, it is quite diverse group and very different uh, reason children's there. So you have to be very tailor-made, you have to be very local focused or there's some sort of understanding it may be different. So we don't have there. So that is one of the reasons I wanted to do something for and I will talk uh, speak a bit later on that uh, aspect. You asked me what actually we need to focus on. Uh, yes, residential children as a whole especially in the West, it says it's very negative, very negative as a last resort, this and that. From my findings, I think it's not necessarily it, it is a last resort because residential child care actually helping many children uh, is a support. If these children was not able to come to the institution, they may not be educated at all. They might get involved in the other thing. So in my residential children's home, actually supporting as a positive uh, thing. Second thing in the institution, actually supporting a lot of skill, like the how to behave with the friends, uh, the peer relationship, or the communication skills, or fellow feelings, all these things you will learn from. Because now, especially West and even in Bangladesh or other part, family becoming nuclear, nuclear, nuclear. So you actually don't learn what is happening in the everyday in the family life. So that can be. As a family, if you can integrate family as part of that residential childcare as well, so that can serve as a very positive part of the thing. So yes, I'm not saying there is not shortcomings, there is not problem. Yes, there is a lot of problems, but we need to understand the context uh, because we cannot say, okay, you have to stop or you have to close all the residential children's so home. It's, it's not possible in Bangladeshi context or even South Asian context because my research is the first scientific research in South Asia because I didn't find any research. So it will take time, but we need to work more and more and to know about more, then how we can support the children to get better outcomes to integrate in the society. This is one of the learnings. Uh, second thing I would love to say in the West and also here, they found the religious as some sort of fearing thing or the spiritual part, not as us, because in the West or even in UK, what you said, the, what happened in the church, school, and other thing. So in our context, actually, I found that the spiritual part is also very important because it shows this spirituality or the religious education is helping children to develop, to think in a positive way. So that can be one of the issues. And third thing could be the residential childcare need to be think of as a part of the community, not as an isolated thing. So even in the West, if they think or if they can take it as a part of the community, then outcome will be much, much better 
the children could be. And also, to stop or to reduce the number, we need to work in the families. Uh, if there is problem, if there's, oh yes, that could be the first step, not to bring the children in the institution. But if the children's home is for education, if the children's home is for healthcare, if the children's home for safety and security, if the children's home for develop the children, I actually don't think there is anything wrong to send the children there. Children spend the 14 or 20 hours or, or even for 24 hours a day. So that's not bad. Uh, so that is my observation. It's very interesting because you studied in England and Scotland and in the West, there's been sort of a negative attitude toward residential care. And we have the philosophy of the least restrictive environment. And I was just wondering, too, if you have any system of foster homes where kids go to another family or you don't have that at all. We have kinship care, but that is not legalized because in, still in Bangladesh, we live in three generations under the same roof. So normally we don't have government system as such, but uh, if the parents somehow died or any problem, it automatically goes to the first families. Uh, kinship is very strong here, they say. But we don't uh, have any adoption as such, but it is happening. I think you're saying an interesting thing though, that residential care can be a support to families. It doesn't have to be either or, that the children are with residential care and they don't have their families, and that they can fill some of the needs of families that they might not be able to provide education. They wouldn't have access to school or health or things without these institutions. It's helpful for us to understand that, I think. Yeah, this is recently, yesterday, I had a meeting with the Department of Social Welfare in Bangladesh and also UNICEF. A UNICEF and all government, they are trying to do some sort of work of whether foster care is feasible here in Bangladesh or not. And also the consultant, she took an interview eight, nine months ago. But my understanding is foster care is not feasible in Bangladesh because first of all, I gave one point, because in the family, if there is any abuse and neglect, you don't know what is happening in particular families because we don't have any data, we don't have any reporting system as such. So actually what is happening in there, you don't know. But if children in the institution, at least people have their access and children, if they get abused in any way, other children will know. So there is some sort of way. So this is one of my strong arguments. And why you have to be very, very, very foster care. Yeah, it's still Bangladesh kinship care is working. So not necessarily you need to impose the Western ideas and this and better you grow you value the local values and ethics if it doesn't contradict with the framework so you just nourish them and follow and that will be much more helpful for the countries yes i think you're making an important point that sometimes just importing another model from another country i mean if i could go back and reinvent our child welfare system because we started so much with foster care and it became a really predominant mode of care and a lot of the preventive part didn't really come until later like trying to say wait we could work with families so i think that's another important point that you're making that it's very important that models fit the context not just blindly importing things from other places yeah so one one thing i wanted to mention because the important thing like even uncrc this is very much kind of importing and it is much easier to impose for developing countries. Like 
the rights and because I my, my theoretical framework I argue whether needs is important, rights is important. So as well as I discuss about needs is very important in particular context and rights is important. But within the needs, you can framing in rights as well. As well as you are saying, oh, the children are damaged, this and that. So I discuss about both attachment and resilience because children have their own capacity to get back, uh, fight back to the... And also I talked about the holistic approach, the ecological system approach, because you need to look at the whole thing, like the socio-political condition, the children themselves, the families. Otherwise, you will not get the real picture of the residential childcare and whatever you want to do. Great. So what do you plan to do with your research, with these findings, and what are some of your future plans? Currently, I have been working with an international NGO and developing the child care policy and operation manual. They support that their partner organization, but that is very specific. But particularly, I want trying to do two things. One, first of all, I want to disseminate my research finding disseminate my research finding in four group of people. First, the children themselves who are the part of my interview and the children who are in the institutions or left care. Second group, I wanted to do it separately with the professionals who are working there. Because if I do not want to share, after seven years of my work, it will be just wasted. Because how many academics actually will read the work? Because my understanding was they need to know and then they can think of the change to develop. And third group of uh, dissemination I want to do is the law enforcement agency, academias, the policymakers, all the people uh, uh, there. And fourth group of people I want to do particularly, especially the development agencies and the government, those who are very, very high professional, because they need to know actually when they make plan and policy. And through there, my second objective is to develop a project for developing a national residential childcare policy in Bangladesh. And for that, there might be a three, ten, okay, three, four, five components. First, I wanted to develop a database because we don't know how many institutions, how many children are there. Somebody is saying 49,000, some saying 6 million. So we need to know actually exactly how many children are there. And within this and second phase will be the thematic work or research for getting evidence like education, healthcare, relationship, abuse, neglect, all the other things. There might be 50 things to get the idea of what is happening there. And from there, you will develop some evidence as well as you will do the advocacy for developing and uh, developing a residential child care research center or the organization for the care leavers or other things. And third phase, you will just to give the pressure to the government to develop the residential child care policy that will be basically run by the care leavers. Uh, they will, because they're not the best, because they spend their life there and also. So this is the thing I wanted to do in my future. And I have been trying, but that is not very easy because it's a lot of involvement for financial involvement, expertise involvement, because they have their own priorities, all this thing. And for that, I will ask actually the people, those who are interested to come here to know Bangladesh, do some work. We can do some comparative work in, in your part and our part because we can learn from each other, not necessarily very specific in residential childcare. It's, there might have many things could be happen, education, healthcare, governance, and other things. 
students, they can come here and they can do their dissertation and I can be helpful in institutional supervisor as well as we can try to find some, some kind kind of support, not cash kind of support. The researcher like you or others, organization, the NGOs, the charity, they can develop some sort of project. Projects. In university, we can develop some sort of work together that can happen to support each other and help each other. Or there might have some sort of exchange program. We can go there and give some visiting, lecturing the children or student or other thing. You can come, you can teach our staff. That can have thing might happen. So I have been trying this and I'm talking to Canada and UKs and I'm trying to build up a big research hub in Bangladesh for South Asia because nobody have done this kind of work. So you have a big project ahead of you and very excellent and exciting goals. And I'm hearing you say that this is going to require a lot of collaboration and that it sounds like you're inviting the social work community to think about ways of getting involved. So do you have any other suggestions for how people can get involved? When I talk about this plan to the West and different countries, people first they ask me, where do we get the money? Their first question is, where do you get the money? But what I believe, you don't need money for everything. So if you have a good plan, if you have good intention, money will come. Because what I believe, if you have firm determination, if you have good intention, and if you really want to do something, money will come. Because from my own experience, and if you read my book chapter, you might saw that, uh, yeah. Because uh, my background is was completely different field, forestry. Then I ended up with the social worker and thinking very different because I think very big, start with very small. And I believe if the collaborative work, the mutual understanding, actually very, very helpful for everything and for the children. From Because children are children. They may be in America, they might be in Bangladesh, they might be Africa. But unfortunately or fortunately, because due to the geographical context, they are getting much better support not this support. So, but we can learn from each other. And if you have, or your colleague or other people, those who are interested to do some sort of work in Bangladesh, not necessarily and only in residential childcare, there's a lot of issues we can get involved because my 17 years work of experience, not only with the children, I have worked with disaster, mental health, uh, microcredit, then violence, political, all these things I have that experience and people have got very intellect people are here, but unfortunately, due to that connection, they cannot explode, they cannot get good support for the other part of the world. So, yeah, you can send some of the, your students, or even you can come and visit, uh, and your colleague can come and visit. Uh, you are most welcome, always. You don't need to think about your food and accommodation. We can do it. I really want to thank you so much for sharing your really exciting and excellent in-depth research. It's a very useful project. And I think for our audiences, it's really exciting to see academic research have real-life implications that you know, you're actually working on using it to influence policy. And that's, I think, an inspiration to all of us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And the podcast team and the university I think this is the beginning of our relationship and hopefully we can do something for the betterment of the children 
both from in Bangladesh and your part of the world. In the United States, sure. You've given us food for thought in terms of things that we need to think about here too. So I want to thank you very much for your time and having this connection with us. You've been listening to MD Tuhino Islam discuss residential childcare in Bangladesh on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.